Happy Friday morning, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily and the long-form episode we air every week to get you into the last day of trading and into the weekend. This is your host, Trevor Hall. Thank you so much for tuning in throughout the week. A uh, special thank you to Kylie Williams for sitting in for me for the first time doing the morning briefing. I'm sure people tuning in uh, were caught by a surprise a little bit, but she did a great job. Uh, you'll be hearing more from Kylie Williams as we continue to uh, move in the future. A special thank you to our sponsors of the podcast, Integra Resources, which we heard from earlier this week, Corvus Gold, Western Copper and Gold, we also heard from them, and Rio2. Thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. You can't go to miningstockdaily.com to see a full rundown of the sponsors that support the podcast and putting out the content each and every trading day. If you would like to reach out to me, please do so. Email is trevor at clearcreekdigital.com. I do try to return those emails in a timely manner uh, if I can. We've got two, uh, well, two returning uh, guests uh, joining us today. We first welcome back Chris Temple. We kind of run the gamut with Chris talking everything from uh, his thoughts on gold, which is a little bit better than it was a couple months ago. Uh, But we talk inflation, we talk the Fed, just a lot of different topics to cover with Chris Temple over the National Investor. We then turn to Don Durrett from goldstockdata.com. We cover a lot of conversation with him regarding uh, where he sees precious metals going. We're going to talk a little copper. All right, everybody, we're going to get into my conversation. Bust into it with Chris Temple. Have a great weekend. Be well. Greetings, everybody. Welcome into our first segment of our long-form Friday morning in-depth interview. Oh, that's a mouthful. Uh, happy to bring in our good friend from National Investor, Mr. Chris Temple. Uh, folks, he hasn't written about Dogecoin yet. It's not a buy recommendation, uh, but it is always a pleasure to have Chris on to the show. Uh, Chris, uh, lot, lots kind of going on. Uh, things settling. The dollar has uh, kind of consolidating here. Uh, from another downtrend about just over the 91 area as we're recording. Uh, bonds are uh, kind of consolidating here about 10 year at 1.55, give or take here. Um, not as much of a frenzy trend to people, it seems like just trying to make sense of it all and take a breath here. Yeah, one of the term, things I read yesterday, Trevor, is that the market, generally speaking at least, is just exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has had this frenzy. It, it's like uh, mar- investors have been on this major sugar high. It's been this big party, and and now everybody's just kind of coming down off the high at least a little bit and trying to sort things out. Um, I did speak of uh, Doggy Coin. Uh, I think it was over the weekend when I used it as one of several examples. Another one being a guy months ago who would pay $120,000 for a banana duct tape to a wall. <laughs> to talk about how so much in in the recent past markets, it's like we we've gone through the looking glass with Alice. I mean, a lot of stuff is just stupid, and it's getting curiouser and curiouser, as Alice would have said. So it's it's not an easy thing to navigate. I'm I'm not ashamed to say, you know, and it's difficult to try and 
make sense of the overall situation when even more than we've been able to say on this subject for a long time already, all the liquidity that the Fed has put out there has made people even dumber. Uh, sentiment continues to be pretty dang bullish. In fact, it seems like more bullish week by week. However, we're not seeing exactly where that bullishness is going to really grab hold and create gains. I, you know, it's, it's, it's like day by day, the, the major indices are either up one day, down the next up, you know, so it's a lot of choppiness going on. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, you know, is this one of those times where you just stand back, let things unfold until you pick your next play? Or is there real good opportunities out there for, uh, you know, say short midterm plays? You know, to me, Trevor, the opportunities are mostly in finding the best stories among individual companies. You know, I've added a few quirky ones recently to my list, which in, in most cases are doing well, not all of them, certainly. And e even in that context, what's been really nuts lately is you talk about the choppiness. Look at the Russell 2000 and its volatility. Mm -hmm. You know, one day it's down 2% and the market is up modestly. The next day it's the opposite. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion, too, underneath the surface as to just how much play we're going to get going forward when it comes to this economic recovery. You know, the U.S. right now, fortunately, and hopefully it stays this way, is almost an oasis in the world. I mean, for Pete's sake, you know, this week I've talked, as I always do, and you do as well, because a lot of the companies we cover in the resource space are in Canada. They're, they're going full on nuts with more lockdowns up there to the point now where come Friday, I was told yesterday by a guy in Vancouver, you can't travel 20 minutes without being into some newly defined quote zone. And, uh, you know, now they're chopping up cities and population centers in the zones besides the provincial stay at home orders. So you've got that going on up there. You've got much of Europe that is that is shutting down again. South America, you've had several borders shut down recently and, and bad things going on. Uh, so are, are we going to stay immune from that uh, forever? Or, you know, I think, frankly, that's one of the reasons why we've had a longer pause in this rise in market interest rates than, than I thought we would. And it's because all of a sudden, more than ever, number one, we're the best you know, the, the cleanest shirt and the dirty laundry basket. And so there's uh, more demand for debt and stocks and everything else in the U.S. But also people wondering, hey, maybe we everybody got ahead of their themselves a bit when it comes to just how open-ended these growth stories are going to be. Well, it's interesting when you hear that the, you know, prospects for economic growth is north of 6%. Pretty hot number there, even for an estimate. And that's just from one country. And you see, you know, obviously Canada is, again, lockdown. There's more vaccines rolling out. People are able to get vaccinated. Uh, if you look back, you know, as vaccines rolled out in the U.S., that's when we saw more openings. You would think that a country like Canada that's now getting the vaccine rolled out kind of finally into, into people, that maybe they'll start to reopen here sooner rather than later. Um do you, you know, looking outside the U.S., I'm just kind of curious, do you have a thought here of maybe the global economy from all developed nations running too hot? 
I don't think it's going to be a possibility right away. I mean, we're going to look if, if there's any even halfway decent amount of economic activity, Trevor, of course, we're going to see, uh, especially comparing year over year when last year was so lousy. Any amount of growth is going to look you know, more spectacular, arguably, than it really is compared to a crummy year when we had this self-imposed global recession that came on. But beyond that, you know, I, I question how much traction this is going to have and how durable it's going to be, because notwithstanding the fact that in this country and elsewhere, you've had all of this money printed to try and goose uh, consumption again and to have this demand for assets and and consumer products and services alike let's be real you know we're going to be at a place in another couple of quarters when the sugar highs from the stimulus wear off to where we're back in a punk economy with little legitimate growth uh, that isn't completely or at least indirectly uh, subsidized or created by the government and yet, with how much more debt than when we started. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that, and this is where I, I push back somewhat in a general sense on this idea of a long-term boom of a new roaring 20s kind of thing like some are talking about on this secular uh, boom for commodities, the super cycle and so forth. Sure, with a lot of products, with a lot of metals, Uranium is my number one story. It has been for a while when it comes to supply and demand fundamentals that will not be hurt that much if the economy peters out and globally we slip back into a sideways or even a recession environment. Nickel, I was listening to the company presentation the other day, and th there's a huge uh, supply gap developing in the nickel market. Lithium has completely turned upside down in the last 12 to 18 months to where now it's getting, it is getting deeper into deficit. And there's not the lithium out there presently uh, that is going to supply the projected trajectory of the EV market. So, yeah, there's a lot of these things that should do well. And if the government has the right policies to support this, yeah, there could be some traction. But problem number one is that with such enormous amounts of debt, you cannot compare the situation today in the world to what we had in the 1970s. And I've said this many times, including when you and I have talked. We are not in the 70s anymore. That's true where it comes to understanding gold, and it's true where it comes to understanding this whole inflation debate. There is not the room within the economy certainly when it starts bleeding down more meaningfully to consumers and end users, there is not the room to absorb price increases. It's not there. So yes, you're going to continue to see some upward pressure on uh, costs of raw materials as we've already seen for a variety of factors, including short supply, but it's not going to translate into this long cycle of this cost push inflation like we saw in the seventies where consumers uh, across the board have their incomes go up or they can negotiate pay raises and whatnot. So you're going to start to see sooner rather than later corporate earnings in some of these companies that use a lot of these raw materials get hit. 
And that's when the first significant cracks, I think, will start appearing in the stock market here in the next couple of quarters. We're already seeing it, Chris. I mean, Coca-Cola announced prices increased because of increased costs to their products. Procter & Gamble did the exact same thing just a few days ago. And, and you know, this is not a transitory type of event. I have a very hard time being convinced that Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble and the like are going to come back six months from now and decrease their prices on their products because all of a sudden it's not as expensive anymore. No, they're not going to decrease their, their, their prices. So what it's going to do is it's going to cause with their products or in other places, a slowdown of consumption. And that's when we get to stagflation. When rising costs are not a good thing, they're like, like the Fed tries to pretend, but they're a bad thing and they lead to weaker economic growth but with those still high prices or higher prices yeah um i i do want to talk about this metals complex but before we get there there's a thought that came across my head and would love to open it up to to your commentary here um you know looking back a couple weeks ago there was this game of chicken going on between the fed and you know the quote unquote bond vigilantes that uh, that was the narrative at the time as bonds continue to be sold off yields were rising and everybody's wondering oh what's the fed going to do what's the fed going to do are they going to raise interest rates well we knew that wasn't going to be the case but if you want to think about the real game of chicken that's going to happen it's going to become a time when if the fed ever tapers down some of the things that they have been doing over the last year and a half and what the ramifications of that might be if it's if they stop you know buying debt if they stop uh, or maybe if they raise rates uh, and what ramifications that really could have for the real the you know the growth of the economy and and generally the markets have you given that any thought? Well, sure. I mean, first of all, Trevor, I as much as anybody in the recent past have talked about uh, the bond market vigilantes either rising from the dead or being. Uh, released from their long prison by the Fed. Of course, to be a bond market vigilante for most the most part for a 40-year bull market we've had in treasuries has been uh, not a wise move, and especially since the Fed decided they were going to get into the world of quantitative easing and putting their thumb on the scale and doing whatever it takes to keep uh, yields low. I mean, and I've said it a million times, those people that talk about these phantom conspiracies to suppress the gold price you know they can't see the forest for the trees with all of their conspiracy theories if you want to look at price suppression the biggest story on the planet for years now has been a suppression of interest rates and the fed has i think become so glib uh about their statements uh, that that uh, they're gonna they got all of this under control we're never going to have a financial crisis again as Janet Yellen told us, between her stints as Fed chair and now as Treasury secretary, et cetera, that uh, they don't care if some bond market vigilantes want to try and uh, take uh, a counter trend rally again in interest rates and sell off in bonds recently and think that we're actually going to have some kind of return to a market environment. We're going to get some of that. We started to for a while. And of course, you can say that rates went up so quickly uh, and and so far, uh, going back the last four or five months, that this pause me maybe isn't that much of a surprise. And I still think that you know, provided the U.S. 
does not have any kind of significant near-term virus relapse itself or some other growth shock comes, I still think we're going to have episodes in, in the very near future, Trevor, where we do get some more hot inflation numbers that the market decides to pay attention to again, and we get another move higher in long-term rates. But the Fed believes, and with, without, you know, with, with some reasonable cause, that they can continue to sit on their hands. And even with hot inflation numbers, the market can only go so far against them. Rates are still negative in Europe. They're still, you, you still need a microscope to see them where they're not negative. And so in relative terms, the 10-year treasury now that's settled in a range of around 155, give or take a little bit in recent days, looks pretty darn good if you're just about anywhere else in the world where you've got a lousier economy in in most major areas japan europe and china economic and financial fundamentals worse than the u.s so how much higher can yields go how much more will people actually sell them off so the, the fed for a while is going to get away with this uh game of chicken as you referred to it earlier uh, and, unless the rest of the world starts to catch up, we really get hotter economic activity. And if we start going north of 2% with any conviction on the 10-year Treasury, then it's going to start putting bigger dents in, in gold and in the NASDAQ and in the most overvalued sectors again. But long term, look, the Fed is loath to raise interest rates. If the market were to react that badly to a hot economy and more inflation numbers, the Fed will get to a point where it has no choice but to institute yield curve control because, as you alluded to, and as I said a few minutes ago, Trevor, there is no room in this world for major costs of raw materials to be passed on for any length of time to consumers and small businesses and things like that. And in exactly the same sense, there is also not the room to have higher interest costs added on because with the even higher mountains, you know, we've got Mount Everests of debt now in the world, thanks to the last year, year and a half or so, uh, you can't have even a modest rise in financing costs without that blowing everything up. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. I mean, you say there's no room for, cons you know, for the consumers to take on higher costs. Um, that's one thing. So, but what we're seeing here in the mining industry uh, um, Chris is obviously miners and mine builders are not immune to higher costs of supplies and goods. Um, we, you know, they have to build mines uh, using, you know, whatever the manufacturers are selling them at. Um, so there's little wiggle room there. We've seen companies come and have to raise more money to build mines um, because of higher costs over the last three months, you know, lead, aluminum, all those raw materials are costing more. Uh, so to build a mine, it's going to cost more money to get that to get that thing built. We've had this conversation. I can't hit. I'm just hitting it harder and harder at almost every episode. I think about you know to, for investors and in resource to be aware of this as well and keep an and keep an open mind about it. Um, however, when you say consumers can't take on higher costs, it's almost as if investors are willing to take on that higher cost because. They know like, okay, if a company needs to raise more more money to get something built to produce more raw materials, let's get it done because 
there's a feeling that this super this cycle is going is just in the early stages like this these mines are going to be profitable after they get built have you have you thought about that well we'll see um again as i said in a more general sense earlier in our conversation trevor uh, it is going to be companies that have to buy these higher priced raw materials to produce their own goods services products whatever it may be uh and if you believe that, and I'll, and I'll single out gold in a positive sense here, look, when we get, and I still don't, I'm still not 100% convinced that we have seen the final bottom for gold. Uh, I will say in a positive way that gold in recent days in getting back above that 1750 to 1775 an ounce level where it broke down a while back, uh, at least it has been getting some merit in its own right as a first matter. It hasn't been completely uh, hostage to the moves in market interest rates like we've seen for the last several months. Uh, That said, long-term, I am still screamingly bullish on gold because when we get to the point, not if, when, when we get to the point that the sugar high from all the stimulus peters out, and we don't have any major impetus for the economy going forward. And frankly, and we need to talk about this just for a minute, mm-hmm. the only legitimate chance that we have for that is a, is a legitimate infrastructure and green energy program, which the Biden administration just gave us a joke of a political monstrosity that's more woke and virtue signaling nonsense than it is anything to help the economy and infrastructure long term. There's good stuff in it, but it's a minority of the proposed spending that the president has come out with. Yeah. It seems, so, it seems like a pork bill, you know, it's, 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 it's asinine, totally asinine. You know, I didn't know there was racist highways near where I grew up in Syracuse, New York, but they got to spend money to dismantle a racist highway. I mean, this is silliness it, you got, you got, you got complete policy wonk, starry eyed nincompoops running these things and setting policy now. So that makes me far more bullish long-term on gold than I would have been if we had a good infrastructure bill and or good green energy spending to come that would give us a chance to have a decent amount of time where we would have higher incomes. We would have stronger new areas of the economy dedicated to green energy and infrastructure and so forth. Anyway, I I got off on that little tangent. Bottom line, back to gold and expenses. (laughs) Gold is going to do better than any other metal or commodity longer term and be more able to absorb the costs because when we get to that point, that everything bogs down again, the Fed has to double down on money printing, and we're still not getting anything lasting within the economy, we'll be back to that point once more, which will get us to that odd couple trade I always liked of being long treasuries, which will turn down again in yield as everything bogs down again, and being long gold, which this next time around, it won't be treasuries and gold, you know, kind of doing equally as well. Treasuries will do nominally well, and gold will scream higher. You know, if, if that starts in earnest in two quarters, three quarters, I don't know, but it will. And when that time comes, whatever the higher costs are uh, for gold miners, uh, they'll be happy to absorb them because the price of their particular product at least will be going up more than anything else will. Yeah, you. Uh, that's about the most positive you've been on gold for quite some time, so I'll take it. <laughs> And again, I'm still hedging because, look, 
if in the next couple or three months um, we we see the economy continues hot, we get some hot inflation numbers, the bond market vigilantes regroup, and uh, boom, they start to push the 10-year note yield back up toward 2%. I guarantee you that gold will come down mm. uh, again. And we'll have to see if for a third time we can hold above 1675. So my, my long-term bullishness is unfazed. And frankly, with the Biden administration pretty much having already destroyed any chance of a long-term recovery with this nonsense that they propose and they've called infrastructure, I, I'm, I'm even more bullish longer term on gold than I was before. It's just a question of do we start to see the fruit of this at the end of this year, sometime in 2022? I don't know. Okay. Uh, you did mention a few the base metal and new energy metal complex here. I mean, we've talked about it as well in the last few days, the uh, supply deficit and things like copper. You mentioned nickel and now lithium, which is, is new to me. Um, you know, it, it seems like we've talked about it for a number of years and it seems like the explorers in the mining industry were the only ones screaming it from a mountaintop when no one was listening. But we're seeing the early cases of, you know, really almost 10, 20 years of a lack of exploration, lack of permitting, lack of really just mineral development, almost on a global scale. And now that prices are rising, uh, you know, it's not like you can just flip on a switch and bring these metals back into a uh, tradable exchange to get them onto the market. Uh, this is a deficit that really is going to continue to have legs. And I, you know, Goldman Sachs putting $15,000 per ton price on copper here. Uh, I yep. saw the latest news on, uh, I can't remember the price on nickel uh, that they had not too many days ago. But uh, if those outlooks continue, I mean, you think $4 copper per pound is great. I mean, you're going to love $8 copper. <laughs> well, you know, and, and those arguments are compelling. But here again, and, and I don't have the answers to exactly how this is going to turn out. I don't pretend to, but I'm simply putting out there, Trevor, that you've got a situation now, and it's different depending on which of these commodities specifically that you talk about, but kind of the old opposing force meeting an immovable object kind of thing. You know, you do unquestionably have chronic and, and, and massive supply deficits going forward for a number of years with all of these things. And if you, and again, I think uranium is the, is the most uh, compelling story. It's the it's a best no brainer, I guess, if you will, among these commodities because we still all need utilities, you know, juice from utilities in this world, and you can have the economy bogged down in the U.S. or in Canada or any place else and start to hit demand for almost everything else, but everybody still needs electricity. And you've got a lot of nuclear power plants that are already built that must have uranium. Uh, as a percentage of their overall long-term cost, uranium is not major. So you don't have that argument to say, okay, well, if the economy slows down, then uranium can't go up anymore. That's not true. But with some of these other things, let's talk about copper for a second. Okay, yes, there needs to be a lot more copper mined in the world to meet the demands of the green economy and so forth. But but how do we how do we get from four dollars to eight dollars in a healthy way, in a healthy environment? That's going to add significantly to the cost of a Tesla. 
Uh, is the government going to turn around and add even more subsidies for you to buy an electric vehicle and run a deficit up farther? Because we will get back to the same problem we have had for a lot of years now, when a lot of people believe morally and for the sake of the economy that we should have had uh, electric vehicles, we should have had hydrogen vehicles, we should have had more mass transit a lot sooner than this, but it always comes down to cost, at least for us here in America, where everything is about the almighty dollar. You know, Europe, I'll give them credit that they are a little bit more farsighted. So is China uh, in saying, hey, cost or not, we've got to build a world that we're going to be happy with 50 years from now, not worry about just today. So if all of a sudden uh, the cost of a Tesla is going to be a lot more prohibitive or any electric vehicle because copper's eight bucks or lithium has gone up another 100% or whatever, that slows things down. Uh, another wrinkle of this, you know, is that in not only the U.S., when the Biden administration has already put in jeopardy and stopped the development on three major projects, that all are, are going to feed the whole battery metal supply chain in one way or the other. But now, in a place I thought was less bad in this regard, we've got three First Nations groups up in Ontario that are saying, no, you're not going to develop the ring of fire when it's on our land. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to see continued pushback from First Nations slash Aboriginal groups, and not just in the U.S. and Canada, but this is going on elsewhere. And we're going to have more of these, uh, you know, woke policy wonks that don't want any development at all. They think Elon Musk has a magical extrusion machine that just spits out Teslas just as a finished product without any input from mining and refining and so forth. So that will complicate things as well. So, you know, it sounds wonderful to all of us, Trevor, to think that we're all going to sensibly as a society and led by a sensible government, put the pieces in place truly to have the economy and the energy infrastructure of the future that our children and grandchildren will live with. But we're going to screw it up, and we already are in some ways. You know, this leads into my, my final question for you, Chris, and we'll spend a couple minutes on this, and then I promise we'll let you go. But I want to get your thoughts on the U.S.-China relationship now. I, I, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had texted you and I said, the more I hear President Biden speaking, the more I hear President Trump policies. Uh, you, 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 you know, you had called that. You said, you yep. know, people that think Biden's going to be soft on China think again, uh, continues to be the case. The, the, the relationship continues to be contentious. Uh, we are so reliant here in the U.S. for our economic development on China, that it's almost scary and dangerous. Uh, I, you know, and especially when it comes to inflation and growth and all these things that we just talked about, uh, I feel like the U.S. is stuck in a very hard predicament where we need them, but at the same time, it's almost like we're not ready to let them go. Yeah, it is, you know, there's an old saying that it's it's easier to learn truth than to unlearn error. Yeah. And, of course, we can be taught that lesson every day just watching CNN or the other establishment media, how much people are lied to so that you can't recognize the truth when it comes. Likewise, 
you know, when we're starting, you know, we're, we're standing on our own two feet here in 2021 and trying to figure out how to undo a lot of stupid stuff that's gone on for two generations in allowing China, thanks to the U.S. capital and U.S. corporations that helped China become first a, a mercantilist colony of the United States of America early on. And now China wants to call its own shots and it wants to be king of the world in its own right, uh, no longer uh, tied to America, no longer being uh, uh, one half of the biggest vendor financing scheme in history as uh, American corporations, manufacturing grounds and so forth. And how do we do that? Uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, there are strategic things involved. There's military considerations. There's all kinds of considerations. And it's our own fault in the first place, as former President Trump correctly pointed out, even if he didn't always have the solutions. Uh, we, we very much did create this monster ourselves. It was just like we, we wouldn't have had a Soviet Union to have as our main adversary for decades had it not been for the U.S. enabling and creating and propping it up until it was too late. So, look, Joe Biden, and I said this, as you pointed out, before even the election, this thing that, you know, where China Joe is back in the White House, yeah, it's funny for all of us to circulate the cartoons of, of him at the end of a choke collar that uh, President Xi is holding, you know, it, it's funny, but that's not the reality of things. You know, we have a situation where people that run this country will absolutely not allow, if they can prevent it, China to overtake the U.S. as the dominant global power, period. So in some areas, yes, and President Trump started a lot of this. We're trying to get supply chains of various things back to the U.S. There was some great news out yesterday from Energy Fuels and, and uh, a new company that is the same management that brought us Piedmont Lithium, they're looking to bolster a, a start to finish rare earth supply chain here in the U.S. That's all good stuff. But look, Joe Biden, you know, after the Chauvin verdict in the Twin Cities, Joe Biden came out railing against systemic racism, which he voted for and enabled for 50 years. Did he change his mind? No. He goes with whatever the system wants at a certain point in time. And what the system wants at a certain point in time on that subject, Trevor, is for continued racial animosity and divide and conquer in this country. So that's why Joe Biden now is, is no longer the guy who, who couldn't vote fast enough for stuff to lock up minorities in this country, but now he's telling us he's something different because that's what his handlers tell him is what's required now. Likewise, Forget all about China, Joe. Ch Joe Biden will go along a lot faster on war, not only with China, but with Russia, than Donald Trump would have been. And that's the scary thing when you've got someone as a president who, and not even getting into the whole, you know, mental faculties part of the discussion, who simply is 110% uh, uh, an errand boy for the deep state and always has been. At least in Trump's case, when so often it was conflicted and he couldn't figure out what to do in his own sometimes very ignorant way, he was trying to resist the pull towards war. And one minute he'd get pulled in the direction of the deep state people that would love to torpedo China's economy. The next minute he's getting pulled back in, in the direction of Wall Street that doesn't want any trade war at all, but just cares about profits. Uh, Joe Biden will be far more cooperative with the Hawks 
uh, is they want to try and isolate China globally. And even if it came to conflict, and that's a, that's one of the more scary aspects of our world right now to me. Uh, Chris, there's a lot to unravel here over the last uh, 30 or so minutes. A pleasure to really, uh, you know, take a swing on a lot of different topics here. And I don't know if we made any, gave anybody any answers, but we certainly gave people a lot of things to consider and think about as uh, they, you know, consider where to put their money or just kind of sit back and watch. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think that uh, sitting back and watch isn't uh, isn't really a bad idea right now because I I sure am getting more and more perplexed about the macro picture of things and and just what's keeping these uh, goof, goofy markets afloat in a broad sense. But it, the 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 good thing I guess in the end, as I said early on, is that. Uh, at least there's a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of good stories out there. And look, even in the resource space, I mean, I, I you, you, you get my emails. I'm talking about two different private placements of two gold exploration companies right now. Nobody has got any trouble raising money right now if they have a worthwhile project. And every one of them is oversubscribed. Yeah. Uh Chris, uh, one last thing. You got a little road trip in your horizon here. You're making a stop in Chicago. I saw that you are yeah. you are hosting a little bit of a networking get-together. I don't think it's in the uh, penthouse suite of the Drake Hotel down there downtown, <laughs> but uh, you know, where can people find that information, reach out to you in case uh, if they are around the Windy City area, they'd uh, get a chance to uh, shake your hand and talk. Well, I'd love to do it at an iconic place like an oven grinders uh, downtown, which uh, is in the basement, a wonderful, unique little Italian joint, Trevor, that's in the basement of a former lookout house that Al Capone and his guys had. Um, but no, it's going to be at the uh, Marriott in uh, Lincolnshire, which is about a half hour north of uh, Chicago, just below the Vernon Hills area. Uh, we're all, almost full already, which has shockingly surprised me. Uh, as far as the amount of room that we have in this meeting room for a meal and to get together. So if anybody wants to come to that and they're in, in or near the Chicagoland area, just uh, send me an email to chris at nationalinvestor.com and we'll try and fit you in. All right. Well, if I was there, Chris, I'd, I'd pull you by the uh, coattails and we'd go down to Billy Goats and have a cheeseburger and a beer. We could do that, too. <laughs> right. That's Chris Temple from The National Investor. We're going to take a real short break, everybody, and be back with our second segment here on the Friday Long Forum. Stay tuned. We are just beginning our second segment of this long form episode. Happy to welcome welcome, welcome in from goldstockdata.com, the one and only Mr. Don Durrett. Hey, Don, welcome back to the show. Hey, Trevor. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we uh, were just coming off a discussion with Chris Temple where he uh, basically, his thoughts were the markets are coming off of, they just feel exhausted after everything we've been through the last, well, I guess you could say almost the year. Um, I thought that was a good kind of way to kind of lead into this conversation and see if you agree with the exhaustion in general. Granted, we are recording this Thursday afternoon where we did see a sell-off 
after some news of a proposed capital gains tax increase from the Biden administration. Uh, the market didn't like that so much. Um, yeah, I I agree uh, completely with the, the the idea that the markets are exhausted or close to exhausted. I've been recently been using the word binge. So I think that the markets have been on a binge since October. We haven't had a correction, significant correction since October. So um, it's it's been quite a ride for uh, more than 12 months now. So we started basically running um, late March last year, had a little bit of a correction in September and October, and then we started running again. Basically, those both of those minor dips got bought. So we've been on a one-year kind of binge um, with the backdrop of of COVID and the backdrop of you know we could talk about you know this for a long time the economic the United States economic system you know I think um, uh, coming to an I don't know if an end is is too harsh of a word. But the economic dominance of the American economic system um, is de definitely getting threatened by Southeast Asia. So that's that's part of this whole picture of the markets. So you have the COVID that popped up. And I don't think that the Fed allowed the economy to have a recession from, say, 2010 to 2010 until we just had one. Uh, 2020, the Fed basically was going to stimulate whatever it took. And that is, and there's this appearance that the U.S. has a strong, is still the dominant economy of the world, and that it's just going to bounce back. And so that's why I'm calling this current run a binge, because I think it is exhausted. It is going to come to an end. This melt up will come to an end. And I'm expecting a transition point here for the U.S. economy. I'm not expecting going back to normal and and every in the, in the US is this dominant force around the world and we're we get to basically dictate to the rest of the world. I think everybody's starting to realize it's, it, we're no longer, you know, you know top dog if you will. I, I could be wrong, but that I feel like this is a transition point and it sets up for for gold and silver in my opinion after this binge ends. Uh Don, we're going to spend some time talking about gold and silver, but I want to spend a lot more time right now talking about what this transition point looks like in your head. When you talk transition point, is this a transition of how our economic system works? Is this a transition from, you know, just how people are investing from growth into value? Uh, you know, what does this transition point look like? Well, I, I consider myself a bit of an amateur historian. I, I'm a writer, so I'm always doing a lot of research. I've been following the economic political system since 1980. Um, and I was very, if you go back to the, the Reagan era of the 1980s, I was a critic of the Reagan doctrine. Um, I basically said that, you know, and, and George Bush even called it voodoo economics. Um, I, I just thought that that wouldn't work. And basically what the, the, you know, the Reagan economic system was, was it was basically Keynesian economics during periods of growth. So the economic Reagan, he got into office in 1980 when the economy was in severe recession, but it, it was coming out. So by 81, 82, the recession was coming out. But Reagan, he stimulated the heck out of it all the way through his presidency. We had serious 
So he was basically stimulating a growing economy and it worked. Of course, it's going to work. But that economic system, I didn't think it could last. So it, it had the impact of making America look stronger than it really was. And that carried over into the 90s and, in, and then it broke. I, I basically think that we peaked in 98, 99. Um, and then since this new century, um, we've been hanging on, hanging on by a thread, in my opinion. So the transition is literally um, the economic, I call it the economic dominance of the world is basically shifting away from the U.S. We were the dominant economic system from 1945 to 2000, and it's been shifting. And now we're at this inflection transition point where I think the economic power, if you will, is going to shift it to Asia and specifically Southeast Asia. But you can include India and China in there. But, you know, basically uh, Japan, South Korea, um, these countries uh, are going to in China, of course, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, these economic systems, um, they <laughs> they're beating us at our own game. Mm-hmm. They're actually more capitalistic than we are. Here we have Biden increasing the capital gains rate. I've been saying this, that Biden is the first president since Ronald Reagan to basically walk away from supply-side economics. All supply-side economics is, is is that the government is going to support the suppliers. So who are the suppliers? The suppliers are the large corporations, the middle business, and the small business. We're going to support the suppliers. We're not going to hurt them. Um, And anything that that impacts those suppliers. So if you're going to raise capital gains to what Biden today was saying, you know, over 40 percent, that hurts the suppliers because the suppliers need the investment money from those people. There's always going to be there's going to be ramifications if you go after. So this is a big, big shift. And now what's going to happen? I think that the U.S. economy is basically going to begin stagnating. We're basically turning into Japan. So if you remember Japan, they were roaring through the 70s and 80s. I mean, they, you know, you know, really strong growth rates. Japan was just killing it, really, doing fantastic through the 70s and the 80s. And then they hit a wall at the end of the 80s, and they've been muddling. Their GDP has basically been muddling for 30 years. I think the U.S. is going to go into a muddling phase here very soon. We're melting up. I don't think we're going to crash. I think we're going to muddle because of the MMT. MMT injection of all the money is going to cause us to muddle. But the muddling is going to cause fear in investors because of all this debt overhang. So the debt overhang is going to cause fear and cause money go from the bonds into gold and bonds into, into silver. The bond, It's all about, for me, it's about money that's in stocks and bonds moving to gold and silver. And it's all you need is a small percentage of it, small, small percentage to get gold and silver to double and triple. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there, Don. Um, a couple of things <laughs> that I had taken some notes while you were talking. Um, you know, going back to, you mentioned the 90s and 2000, you know, 2000, and that's where, there's a couple of things in that time frame that I wanted to bring up. In fact, I just got Peter Thiel's book in the mail called Zero to One, and I was reading the first couple chapters, and then he was writing about the exuberance of the dot-com bubble that busted in March of 2000, uh, and he was the founder of PayPal at the time. Uh, they they managed to survive off obviously, um, but he talked about that exuberance in the market and how it just really you know extinguished everything and, and just caused you know mayhem when the thing did bust. 
but then you fast forward into 2001, I believe it was 2001, when then George, President George W. Bush did sign that trade agreement with China, which really opened up China's ability to provide so many goods to not only the U.S., but the rest of North America. But we've got to a point to where that relationship with China is we're almost damned if we do, damned if we don't anymore. Uh, right. Um, so people don't realize, you know, the media doesn't, the media is so superficial now. And one of the things, I mean, it's unbelievable how superficial it's become. Um, but the way that the media talks about the China-U.S. relationship is missing the point to such a huge degree. I mean, Trump was really the first person to basically stand up and say, we have a problem with China. You know, and he got attacked for it. And nobody really, you know, I don't think anybody, real, uh, not anybody, but I don't think anybody really in the main, mainstream media really um, accepted that Trump, what, that Trump had a good point, a valid point, that China is our economic nemesis. And from the economic nemesis, it becomes to be a bit of a, bit of a military, militaristic nemesis as well. But the but the underlying thing is it's all about money and it's all about trade and it's all about who, you know, which countries. Remember the United States, the strength of the United States from 1945 to 19, um, all the way to 2000 was our ability to have economic relationships around the world to grow our economy and grow our corporate influence. So China is growing their corporate influence, if you will. If this is an economic war, no, there's no, this is not about two nations friendly getting along or friendly, you know, each country doing their own trade, you know. Um, if you remember back in the, in the 80s and in, even in the 90s, the U.S. and Japan had this economic, uh, you know, antagonism going on. And we tried to you know, ignore it, not talk about it, whatever. But this is like that relationship on steroids. It's worse, right? Because China's a lot bigger than Japan. Their economic system is in China. Japan was never going to have a bigger GDP than us. But China is. Um, they're going to have a bigger GDP us in like two to three more years. They're going to be, you know, the number one. So this whole economic warfare, if you will, that is, is so significant and it impact can impact our lives, literally how the economy unfolds, because, you know, the bigger the pie is, everybody kind of grows. So what's happening right now in America is the actually actually it's a total transition point because the government is trying to do two things at once, which is it's almost opposed. They're trying to create I'm talking about the current government, the current administration, but they're trying to create a more equitable society. So we have um, more fairness across the board. So we pull people up more and we figure out ways to do that. So we're trying to create an, a system, an economic system that's more equitable and more fair. It's almost like, you know, going back to the, the 60s era, the Johnson era, where they were, were, were trying to do that. Now, there was talk about it in the 60s. Now it's literally happening. Um, all of these um, various programs and various ways to, you know, the Biden administration is doing to help the social fabric of America. Well, that's antagonistic towards economic growth. For instance, like I said earlier, 
economic growth, the only way that you really create that is, you know, you have to, you can't pull down people. You have to pick people up. And so what Biden is doing is really pulling people down by raising taxes. That won't work. It will not create a bigger pie. It will shrink things. So yeah, it'll create things more equitable, but simultaneous to that, do you get a better society? In what way do you get a better society? These are issues we're trying to, to figure out at this moment. This is the transition point. And I think it's going to be a very ugly decade because of the, the conflict of those two ideas. They do not go together. Don, let me, let me kind of press you on that. And, and I just, you know, I, I, there was two things there that you mentioned, uh, you know, bringing people down in the form of higher taxes while also trying to bring people up in the form of equality, uh, you know, I, but that's been the ongoing issue for so many years and generations now. I mean, don't we have, you know, don't we want to bring people up, the people, you know, minorities who have been felt disenfranchised for generations and generations? But, you know, I think saying that, you know, we're bringing people down by raising taxes is, you know, I, it's hard to put those two together in the same argument. Does that make sense? All right. Actually, no. This is the first time we've ever we've really ever tried it. We talked about it in the '60s, but we've never tried it. We've never really the the progressive movement did not exist until Bernie Sanders arrived on the scene. Until Bernie Sanders arrived on the scene, there was really no difference between the Republicans and the Democrats as far as social issues go. There was there was never any attempt to pull people up. That's the reason why we have the systemic racism, because nobody's tried to fix the problem. No one's tried to do anything about it. Um, now, with the progressives, the progressives are finally saying it's time. We're, we're finally going to make an effort here to create laws. This is, this is a very significant period of American history. Yeah. Everybody seems to think that it is not. But I think a lot of people are, are, are cognizant of the fact that things are shifting SIPs. And they're nervous about the shift. Um, this is really the era when, um, especially with the Democrats, they actually have the ability and they're, they're trying to shift things for the first time ever, in my opinion, in American history, where we where truly do what we talked about in the 60s, really true, truly try to create a more equitable society. Um, the, the, everything that we've done until now has really been lip service. It hasn't, you know, the for instance, the corporation, the corporation is more powerful today than it's ever been. So nothing has ever been done in order to create a more equitable society. You have to take the power away from the corporation. And then that's kind of the path we're starting to go down. I'm, well, my point is that this is really the first time that we've ever tried to do any type of equ equity. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very timely. You and I are having this conversation this week on the back of you know, the George Floyd murder trial. Yeah, uh, yeah. And for yeah, a day, yeah. you know, for a couple of days, it seemed like we could kind of take a breath, you know, right. and, and, I, and we had yeah. justice done. Yeah, and isn't it interesting? I mean, this is the first time it's really ever happened. Think about, so So I'm talking about, when I'm, my point, again, I said like I'm an amateur historian, right? <laughs> We've never raised the, the capital gains tax, uh, I mean, corporate tax, the corporate tax hasn't been raised since the 1930s. <laughs> this is the first time. It's the 30s. This is a very historic period. 
Um, so, you know, all we've done is lower them. Is, is again, is we've had supply side economics since Reagan. We've had really supply side not economics since the '60s. There's never been an attack on the corporation. So, in order for, it's never been attack attack in or um, you know, on business. The only way you create an can create an equitable society, and it's very dangerous to even attempt it because you have to experiment with your social fabric, your social system. And that's what they're doing today. That that is what the progressive movement is about. The progressive movement is about okay, it's time, it's time to kind of reorganize our economic and social system. This is serious stuff. Um, it's not, you know. It, one thing that I hear a lot is that, um, especially from the Democrats. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm a writer. And I'm a historian. Um, the, I've talked to Democrats and I've said, do you realize that you are literally trying to create a revolution in American American history here? And they said, oh, no, no, we're not. We're just making little tweaks here and there. These are not tweaks. This is a, this is a revolutionary movement. And the mainstream media, uh, mainstream media is ignoring that fact, too, that it's revolutionary. Uh, but it is. Um, and we will learn about the revolution um, by the end of this decade. And that was my point about America up until now, until 2016, when Bernie Sanders basically arrived on the scene, America was money business focused. That was the focus of America. Uh, the reason why Reagan brought in globalism, and, and when I say globalism, I'm talking about free trade. The reason why he embraced that free trade is because he believed that it would bring in more wealth to the country. It was a money focus. It wasn't a social focus. It wasn't a social system focus. It was a money growth economic focus. Well, America now is divided. There's some, it's so complicated. Nobody can even really talk about it on the on television. You won't even hear everything I'm talking about. You won't even hear I'm even talking about because it's so it's so revolutionary. You, you talk about, you know, this focus of making money versus focus of equity, focus of social systems. That's where we're at today. We are literally at an inflection point of changing the American way of life. You know, you've talked you mentioned this kind of a attack on corporations. You know, a corporation is really an establishment that allows these collectives to take on risks, to, you know, to try new things, to build new businesses, new technologies, and not only create some, not just create something that's already been built and then build more of them and, and distribute, but also to build new business models that have literally never been done before, taking on an incredible amount of risk. So if you disincentivize people to invest in those risk-taking companies, aren't we mitigating the further advances in technology we otherwise could have had? Uh, absolutely. That's why I say this is very serious stuff. This is revolutionary stuff. This is transitionary stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We basically have never even thought about going down that road. But a corporation today is basically all powerful. They can determine, you know, who works for them and who doesn't, how many hours that person has to work, uh, it's unbelievable how much power a corporation has today versus the, I, I wrote a constitution on how uh, to start over, you know, because right now we're trying to figure all this out. And I, and I basically say that our current constitution isn't going to we won't be able to solve our problems 
the way that our current constitution is written. So I wrote a new one from scratch. And one of the area and my constitution covers every aspect of society from from business to political to social. I, 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 it's the whole thing. I mean, but my constitution, I, I will talk a little bit about the some of my ideas around how we change the corporation um, and how do you create equity in society? We have it's there's lots of different ways to do this. But what you just mentioned is that is really the the Achilles heel of the kind of the American system is that if you go and you endanger the current current corporation, what is what is going to be the fallout of that? So yeah. in, in my constitution, what I say that that you have to change who has the power, who has the power, the workers that work in the corporation, humanity who gets uh, um, something from it. Or the investors, the shareholders, who has it? Currently, the shareholders have all the power. The board of directors have all the power. The employees have none. Um, the shareholders have very little. When I say stakeholders have very little, the people that basically the corporation interacts with. When I when I was in college, so I was a business administration major, information services, um, IT, MIS, management information systems, and then I have an MBA. So I know all this stuff about business. Um, in the corporate world, in, right now, um, when I was in college, we talked about stakeholders, how they were important. And then I went into the corporate world and I found out that stakeholders literally are non-existent. The only thing people that matter are basically the executives and the, and the shareholders. The stakeholders are only mitigated to the fact what society requires from them. But stakeholders have very little impact and the employees have very little impact. So that's the shift that's going to have to happen. I always expected it to happen. So you have to shift the power away from basically the board and the shareholders and give it to the employees and give it to the stakeholders. Now, how in the heck do you do that? And in my corporations, I, I have several ideas on how, how to make that happen. Um, they're very they're very radical. Um, I'm not. Actually, I was thinking of, of, of telling you those ideas. You can read my book. They're definitely radical. I, they don't. I don't. Come, I come at it from a realistic. What is the best way for a society to thrive? And my opinion is the current system won't work, and we're seeing it. It will not work. You have to reorganize the way. You have to have more balance. There has to be more balance between the stakeholders, the employees, the shareholders, and the, and the board, board and executives. And until we create a balance, um, things are going to break down. I think that breaking down is what we are going to experience as the progressives, because the progressives, they don't know how to fix this problem. Raising taxes is not the solution. As a matter of fact, I have very low taxes in my corporation, in my in mine. I have a flat tax for corporations, and I have no income taxes. Um, so the, the business will pay, you know, ten percent flat tax. I forget what a tax is, but th th there's no income taxes. Um, so there's no double taxation, if you will, it's just the corporation. But they just all pay a flat tax and a low a low flat tax, so that the so that the corporation can thrive. It's all about making people thrive, making corporations thrive. But the progressives' ideas will not make people thrive. And the, and the conservative Republican ideas will, will not work because they end up making society um, fragment and basically become disabled, which is what we're seeing right now. 
Um, they, and the total free market is, will not work. And we're seeing that right now before our eyes. Uh, this uh, this conversation uh, is going in a direction I we, I wasn't really planning on going, uh, Don. I, I know you weren't either because we were. It wasn't on our it wasn't on our show notes here. I don't see this. Uh, but I you know I, I, we are going to talk. I do want to get your thoughts on gold and silver. But before we get there, Don, I I was just keep on thinking. You know what you were just describing is like the power of an employee owned company, an employee owned corporation. You have your buy in. You have your ownership from the people who are collectively helping leverage up that business. That's the one thing I was thinking. So, well, yeah, you wouldn't, I don't think, I mean, that's one model. That's a possibility, but I don't think that's really the ideal model. I think really the ideal model, um, is where the employees are just more empowered. They're not owners of the business, but they're empowered to the point where they're paid, um, uh, and this is kind of my radical idea. I, I think that they're paid in, in accordance uh, more on more of a kind of a teamwork humanity type basis. And people think, well, this is socialist ideas. And I don't think so. I, what I would say is I would create a flat structure, a flat pay scale instead of a wide one. So basically the, you, for the, peop, the peop person from the, getting the top to the bottom, it's much more tighter, much more flatter. So that once you you don't have to worry about minimum wage. If you if you get a job at that company, you're going to get paid well because the people at the bottom are going to get paid well because you have a flat pay structure, and it's more fair, it's more equitable. I'm and I mean that's I think the ideal way to to set up a business environment: low tax and then more of a, a fair, equitable trade uh, pay. But in order to get a job there, though, you have to be qualified. I'm not, I, that's yeah. the one thing. I mean, the free market is all about if you're qualified, yeah, we're going to hire you kind of thing. But, you know, and then we treat people fairly here. And then it's all about transparency as well. You know, we need transparency. We don't have any transparency. We need to know exactly, you know, how much people, everyone's paid, um, how, how, you know, how they're hiring, how they're firing. You know, mm. transparency, I think, to me is huge. And that's a big shift in society as well. But I, I, let's see if we can get back to gold and silver. <laughs> You've given us a lot to think about here. Uh, okay, catch your breath. Uh, we talked about corporations needing to take on risk. I mean, what's riskier than gold and silver mining and exploration and all that fun stuff? So let's get back to the uh, the real topic at hand. Uh, Don, I really want to get your thoughts here on gold because I know for the last few months you have been kind of – out there, sometimes out on your own, talking about you thought there was more downside for gold to come, and certainly that was the case. Uh, but in the last couple of weeks, we have seen a buy come in. You could make an argument it's broken that downtrend and back into an uptrend. Uh, still a little early, but uh, are you a little bit more optimistic about gold now than you were, say, just a few months ago? Um, no, I'm in the way. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm in the. I'm waiting. I, so okay. <laughs> we're we're in this channel. Um, so this is really easy to understand. So I'll give everybody a quick little overview. So gold and silver were basically in a basing pattern from 2013, 2014 till 2019. So gold was in the pattern from 2013 to 2019, and it was stuck in this channel. So it was a, basically a seven-year basing channel, and then it broke out in June of 2019 at 1370. So we got a long way to go. Gold, you know, is up here at almost 1800. It's got to crash all the way down to 1400 
to basically go into a bear market. So I'm very bullish that we're we're not going in back into a, a basically a bear market. We're just we're just pausing here. So it's a waiting period. Now silver it it didn't go into its basin channel until 2014 and then it stayed until July of last year, 2014-2015. They were almost one year apart. Gold and silver broke out almost one year apart. Silver broke out in July of last year at 1850. Um, so we were, so we had these really long basin channels, and then we broke out of these channels, very significant channels. This is very important stuff. So we got out of those channels. Okay, once we got out of those channels, we basically started bull market. So we started a bull market in gold in 2019, and then we in summer of 2019, and then we started a bull market in silver, summer of 2020. We're in a bull market right now. Um, but we, we went into a correction channel. We went into a correction in August. We've been in a correction since August. That correction channel for gold, it, we hit a low around 1670. So we went all the way to 2070, 2075, down to about 1670. And we're in this channel. And that channel, in order to get out of that channel, we got to have to get to, in my opinion, we have to get about 1950. So we're just waiting for 1950. Until then, it's just nothing means anything. It's just we're going to go up and down, up and down. And then finally, one of these days, we're going to get out above 1950. And then I think silver won't lead. Silver will follow. And silver's channel has been 22 during this since August, uh, 22 to 29, 22 to 29, 50, somewhere in there. So we're in these channels. And until gold... Um, breaks out above 1950. I really don't care about the, the TA charts. I'm just going to ignore them. And the reason why, if the TA basically goes, let's say gold goes to 1850, and you know, other TA people say, I'm a, I'm a big TA person myself, but right now the important thing is the channel. So it gets to 1850. I mean, okay, that's good, but I'm not I'm not going to get excited because the banksters will just pound it back down under back down to 1750. And rinse and repeat. That's my expectation. Rinse and repeat until we get to 1950. So until we get to 1950, I'm just in a holding pattern, just waiting, just waiting, waiting, waiting. Now, when will we? When? What is? What will cause gold to get to 1950? Yeah. And yeah, what is the? What is the backdrop here? Yeah. In my opinion, there's only one thing that gets gold to 1950, and that's the fear trade. And today, the capital gains news basically got people a little afraid. Right. So we right now, everybody, I call it they're in this MMT euphoria. They just they're high on MMT and they got they, they put on their their party glasses, their rose colored glasses and everybody's partying. You know, it's the roaring 20s. Everybody's partying. Everybody's ignoring all these threats that I've been talking about. And, and everybody's just buying stocks. And, you know, the S&P's at 4100. It was at 4200. You know, and, and I don't think it'll get to 4500, but we're in this final melt up. And once that melt-up hits the ceiling or gets close, I think it'll roll over once we get a 5 or 10% retracement. And I think everything's going to start to hit home. Uh, we've had this kind of this honeymoon with Biden from November till now. You know, he hasn't even done a State of the Union address yet. So we're still in this honeymoon phase. I can't believe we're in April and he hasn't done the State of the Union. It's ridiculous. He, the reason why is because he wants to do that. He wants to do it with all the people, but they, they they want it to be, you know, right now they don't want to do the assembly of all the people. But I think they haven't even scheduled the State of the Union, by the way. Mm -hmm. But I think it's coming, and that'll probably be the end of the honeymoon. Honeymoon, 
because the State of the Union is going to scare people really good because he's going to show that he's not a supply sider. Um, because, you know, those State of the Unions, they throw everything that they're going to they want out there on the table. You know, it's just, you know, this big, you know, uh, plan. Um, and so that's going to really show everybody um, his colors, his economic colors. But once this um, melt-up ends, I think that's when the fear trade kicks in. And I think that's when you get the higher gold, higher silver. So once we get past 1950, I'm going to return, you know, super bullish. And then we have to see if, you know, what happens. But I would expect silver, once we get to 1950 on um, gold, I would expect silver to get into the 30s. Once it gets into the 30s, the last real um, resistance point is $35. So I would think silver is going to just magnetize the 35, get there fairly quickly. I would say, you know, within three months, it'll get to 35. And then we'll find out if it's going to make a run this year or not. The key, you know, get to 30, get to 35. And then we then it gets really, really interesting because there's nothing to prevent silver from running from 35 to a new all time high, which is 50. So, I mean, it's very, very exciting times if you're a gold and silver investor. Simultaneous to that, the only, I'll finish with this, is that the one thing that can stop this from happening is the economy growing and inflation dead. So if inflation goes back down, like last, I think inflation's at 2.6% right now. If inflation goes down, say 2.3, 2.2, and stays there, 2.0, and then you have growth, if those two things happen, gold will not get over 1950 this year. Hmm. And then you're stuck. Yeah. Uh, if, so if, the, if you reliant on the fear trade, where does this, you know, let me set the backdrop for this question. I mean, you've got copper at the top, near the top of these cyclical highs. You've got lead coming up. You have, dear Lord, lumber's just been going exponential. Uh, grains such as corn this week, even Don has just gone super high. So you have inflation. You look at all these commodity charts, and then see if you can talk yourself out of the inflation debate. Where does inflation lead to this fear trade that would lead gold to that 1950 mark? Oh uh, yeah, beautiful. I love that question. Best question you asked me today. <laughs> <laughs> so. What's going to cause gold to go higher, right? What's going to go- cause gold to not go higher? So I just said the only thing that I'm afraid of for gold not to go higher, for gold not to get to 1950 this year, is that inflation is dead. It doesn't go higher than 2.5%. It goes lower. Um, and, and the economy grows. Those are the two things I'm afraid of. What you just said was, hey, Don, you don't have to be afraid of that. Inflation is going nuts. And I agree with you. There's a lot of people that say that we're having deflation, but I'm, when I look at all the numbers, I see more inflation this year. I see 3%, not 2.6. I, I see we go into get above 3% soon and then start leaning towards 4 And And once you get above 3% in that inflation number, that's when the fear trade. Now, the reason why, you ask why does the fear trade kick in? Earlier I said, where does the money come from to push gold higher? It comes from bonds. We've been in a 30-year-plus bull market in bonds. Higher inflation ends that bull market. 
You don't want to buy buy bonds if interest if inflation's going higher and interest rates are going higher. Yes, they will probably put in this um, the yield um, YCC the yield control curve. They'll probably bring that in and try to you know this that's never happened before by the way. And the Fed might decide okay we're going to cap the ten year two percent, um, but I don't think that's going to work. Um, inflation won't happen only in the United States. It will happen globally. So in, in bonds across the world will basically, nobody, it will, you know, people are going to say, I want to sell bonds. That's your fear trade. Don, uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been far too long. And uh, this conversation, really, there's so much to think about and take away. I probably myself will go back and listen to it a couple times because <laughs> Uh, I, you know, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a history lesson there. Uh, there was, uh, some, you know, you know, some, some political and economic thoughts from yours, uh, of yours that was presented. We've never heard on the show before. Um, and you know, and, and, and all this is happening on, you know, you can't, uh, discredit the significance of, um, the social, complex that happened this week right, right. and so it's, i wasn't prepared to talk about that but it, i'm glad we did bring it up but then also the economic complex uh how things are kind of panning out here uh it'll be interesting i look forward to have you on again in the next couple of weeks or months and we can see how this is all panned out but uh, in the meantime i will work on asking asking you better questions <laughs> no no all, no your all your questions were good it's just that last one was juicy i really like um, one thing i want to say is um so i write i'm a writer i started out as a metaphysical writer in the early 1990s i started writing my first metaphysical book like 1990 i think and i've written like 10 or more metaphysical books but then i've written two or three political books as well. So I wrote a book called The Demise of America. On the front cover of it, it has the dollar ripped in half. And I wrote that book back around 2010 before all this stuff has happened. So you can go and, you can go and read that book. And it, it, this is before, you know, the progressives even appeared on the stage. And I predicted exactly what's happening right now. The dollar getting ripped in half. But I also, in that book, I talk about the social fra fabric of America collapsing because because if you look at the current trends, what what trends we're going in, so the, the demise of America, um, that one, and then I wrote two Constitution books, so I I do, I do um, gold and silver. I wrote a gold and silver book, so I got the gold and silver investing, which is kind of where I, that's my full time job. But I also have written books on politics, and I've also written um, books on spirituality. And, and one thing about my po political views, again, my po I try not to be conservative or Republican. I, I basically, I eschew both of those. I basically say I'm going to be an outsider writer. I'm going to basically write from a non-biased viewpoint, historian viewpoint, saying this is the way. This is the. This is where America is going under its current, you know, regime political system. And here's an alternative. That's my constitution. Here's an co alternative way to do things. So I. You know, I, when I was in college, I, my poli-sci teacher said, are you a political science major? This is when I was in college. And I said, no, I can't. I go, how can I be a political science major when I disagree with both parties? So when I was younger, I disagreed with both parties. Yeah. So and I've always been that way. So it's like I, I'm kind of like an outsider, you know, to de Tocqueville. The guy came to America and just analyzed it, you know, yeah, I'm kind uh, of like him.
Nietzsche wrote, Madness is rare in individuals, but in groups, parties, and nations and ages, it is the rule. So I think that's a good one to to end on there. Uh, Don, thanks for your time, and I look forward to catching up with you here in the near future. Beautiful, Trevor. Thanks for having me on. It was a nice one. Yeah, that's Don Durrett from uh, goldstockdata.com. That's going to wrap up the long-form interview. We did go long this week, but there was a lot to unravel. Uh, (laughs) Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. We will be back Monday morning with the news briefing. Have yourself a nice time, and we'll talk to you again Monday morning. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.